This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Chasing Tales podcast. This podcast has one simple goal, and that is to inspire you, educate you, and get you motivated to get outside. And we do that by doing three simple things. We bring you awesome guests with awesome stories or awesome topics, and we hope that you come away with this with a fire to get outside and enjoy the outdoors. And hopefully it's not as hot as it is down here wherever you are, because, gee whiz, 77 degrees in February is absurd. But... I am Walter, I am your host, and I am joined just down the street by my co-host, Chase. Dude, tonight was a freaking awesome episode, but it's a long one, so we probably want to keep this intro short. Yeah, no doubt. We had uh, Tony Smotherman on, the traveling hunter, and he pretty much talks all things muzzleloader. Yeah. Um, so just strap in and go on that long drive, or you may have <laughs> to put it. it in pieces, or... Maybe you'll yeah. do a marathon on the uh, treadmill for this one. Uh, Adam Miller for Bowhunters <laughs> Chronicles, he's going to be super stoked on this one. <laughs> yes, he is, <laughs> the, too. the amount of time <laughs> that we uh, that we uh, inter- talk with Tony. So uh, yeah. I, I, was, I was thrilled with how it uh, turned out. Oh, yeah. No matter how you break it up, if you break it up, this is going to be one that you're not going to want to miss a single minute of it. I mean, this is just jam-packed with information, experiences, and you can just, you're going to come away from this episode thinking, I- I've learned a lot, I was entertained. You're, you're just going to come away excited and motivated, I think, to get out there. And if you're not already a muzzleloader or if you had a bad experience like Chase uh, did early on, he details that in the uh, podcast, this is the guy to turn your mind around about what you could do with a muzzleloader and, and, and how to make it an enjoyable experience. But you guys know me. You know I like to talk. So I'm just going to go ahead and shift into thanking the people that make this possible, and then we can get these people on their way. 
first, that's tethered. You've heard us say it a hundred times. We are avid saddle hunters. It has helped us with our game on both private and public land. It is a ultra compact and lightweight way to hunt out of the tree. And they just launched their Phantom Saddle, which if you haven't taken a look at it, you really need to. The launch date is really, I think in about 10 days, if I'm not mistaken, uh, by the time you listen to this podcast, you were going to be, uh, like right on the doorstep of being able to order the new saddle. So give, give them some love. Let them know we sent you www.tetherednation.com. And, uh, they got a lot of cool stuff over there. Chase, why don't you thank the patrons this week? Oh man. Well, we, we got to thank the patrons cause they're the ones that, uh, kind of help make this show possible started a, a marco polo group with our patrons so if you're yep. a patreon member and want to join that uh, marco polo group then just hit walter up with a message on facebook or instagram so we can get you added and uh thanks for all of your support and allowing us to do what uh, we like to do which is uh talk to people like tony smotherman on this podcast and get information out there to you guys Absolutely. And when you think about the fact that those people helped make this show possible, and we just had so much fun recording this episode, it just makes me truly grateful for everybody who who chose to, to support this show. And yeah, dude, that Marco Polo group, I really want to emphasize that real quick, is amazing. There are some awesome, rich dialogues that are happening in there. In fact, I just got another email from another patron asking to be in, uh, invited uh, to, or added to that group. So if that's something you'd like to do, if you'd like to interact with us on a daily basis, share knowledge with like-minded individuals, that group is rapidly developing into an awesome thing. And if that's not enough incentive for you to join, we're giving away a really cool bow site. Chase? That's right. Uh, we're giving away a Trophy Ridge React 5 uh, bow site uh, for this quarter. So yeah. if you're interested in that and want to take some time and join the patreon we have three different levels or three different tiers we have a two a five and a ten dollar tier uh, each of those things kind of get you uh something or like a hat or other things but you're all put in for the uh, the giveaway at the end yeah. and everybody yeah. gets a decal that's a that's a patron of the show we send those out as well so yep. uh, if you want to be a patron we're super excited about that and uh, we look forward to uh, talking with you and you also get some chasing tales exclusive content that gets released out there before it goes anywhere else that's it that's it all right guys with that we promise to keep this short four and a half minutes i hope you enjoy the show all right everybody we are back and on this episode it's going to be dedicated to muzzle loading and the unique opportunities they offer on the line we got a special guest that has devoted decades to muzzle loading and, he, and he's used them to take countless game animals. He's the head influencer of relations for CVA and Bagara Rifles, and most of you might recognize him as the Traveling Hunter. Let's welcome Mr. Tony Smotherman to the podcast. How you doing, Mr. Tony? Man, I, any better, I couldn't stand it, brother. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be on here tonight. Me and Walter, we'd been talking about doing a podcast on muzzle loading, and yeah. your name your name kept coming up, and we actually had a uh, was Adam Cruz which you were on his podcast at one point. He kind of pointed us in uh, your direction. Well, yes, sir. I, uh, I I can't remember how long ago that has been now, but it has been a minute. But he uh, had me on and was gracious enough to give me the opportunity uh, to talk one of my favorite passions, and that's hunting with a muzzleloader or, or a black powder rifle, man. It was, a, it was a good podcast. Awesome. Well, but before we get started, uh, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Oh my goodness! How much time we got? A couple hours. <laughs> we got we got all, we got all night. <laughs> we got all night. Give them a good bio of the traveling hunter. 
uh, I tell you, man, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I'll have to say I'm a, a very blessed human being to be able to do what I do and have done what I have done in the hunting industry and as long as I've been in it. Um, I started out uh, as a young man here in, in Middle Tennessee uh, growing up uh, as a hunter, uh, a little different than what I am and do today. I started out as a coon hunter, and I know that's a lot of folks in the South that coon hunt, but uh, maybe some of the folks out West and maybe up North that are listening to this podcast uh, are not familiar with coon hunting, but I grew up running walker coon hounds with my dad, and and um, oh, as, I, as I got a little older, you know, I got to seeing uh, all my buddies uh, were bow hunters uh, as I got up into high school, and they were going after, uh, in, in my mind, these big animals, of course, it's a deer, as you and I know it today, but me, as a young man, chasing coons all over the place, you know, I, I didn't get to play with big animals like deer, and then I started seeing all these antlers these guys were shooting. It just pretty, uh, well, it, it, it intrigued me to the, to the point where um, I just kind of stepped away from coon hunting um, and pursued my interest in chasing these deer around here in Middle Tennessee, uh, where I live at, uh, where I was born and raised and still live today. Um, but to be honest with you, really what got me to where I'm at today, uh, it's kind of a, a weird situation or a weird story. It, you know, as you, as, um, a young man or a young gal across the country, when you become a teenager, things change. Okay, it just is. Things change, man. And and, and, and I kind of got to running with the wrong crowd and, and uh, got wrapped up in some things that I probably shouldn't have been. Uh, not so much as, uh, uh, you know, as today we know drug abuse is a pretty bad problem across the country. But um, I, I kind of got involved with the party crowd and it was more alcohol abuse. Uh, well, it was totally alcohol abuse when I was 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. Uh, to where I got pretty sidetracked, and thankfully I had some uh, some good friends uh, that was through high school and just out of high school that, that really pulled me into the uh, big game hunting world of, of archery and hunting whitetail here um, in Tennessee. And, and thankfully, uh, it, it actually pulled me out of my problem area that I was in uh, with all the, the alcohol abuse and partying that I was doing. It's, it's of course, a lot of teenagers do i just was taking it about like anything i do i take it to the next level and um uh, it, it was next level trouble if i didn't change my ways and the man upstairs saw fit to uh um i guess introduced me to these guys that, that, that i got wrapped up in uh they were big bow hunters and and eventually uh the the party and all that stuff went to the left field and just disappeared because my infatuation uh with hunting whitetail um and and i guess when i uh, I got up in my early 20s, 21, 22, 23. Um, I had met, oddly enough, I'd met a pastor or a preacher of a church and, and, and found out he was a big turkey hunter, and him and I turkey hunted quite a bit together for a little bit. And I just asked him that, um, you know, I, I never did know anybody that, that I grew up with uh, that wanted to, you know, their ultimate goal at the end of the day was to be a pastor of a church. And why in the world was he one? What what made him take that path? And he's like, Tony, you know, I, I got to be honest with you. I, I have no idea why I'm a pastor of a church. Um, I didn't grow up wanting to, to do this. It was just one day it hit me that that's what I thought I was called to do, and that's what I'm doing. I said, sir, I got the craziest story you'll ever hear. I said, but going through my mid-teen years when, when life is changing for a young man and, and – um, 
uh, wanting to, to be around and be the popular one of the bunch and peer pressure. I said, I got pretty heavily in alcohol. And I said, the only thing that stopped me from going down the wrong path was hunting, was outdoors. I mean, it literally saved my butt. Um, I said, sir, I said, I, I really believe that because of that, maybe I'm supposed to be in the hunting industry. Um, I said, and of course, now again, I'm going to date myself here real bad. We, you, me, everybody's listening to know there's a hunting industry. But when, when I was 20 years old, that was, well, heck, that's 25 years ago. Um, <laughs> there really wasn't a hunting industry per se. I mean, there were people that wrote hunting articles and hunting magazines and Buckmasters was strong and deer and deer hunting and North American whitetail uh, was strong. Uh, but it's a hunting industry, uh, influencers, social media, all the stuff that we know today, there was none of that. Uh, but I told this gentleman, I thought, well, maybe I'm supposed to do something in the hunting, hunting avenue or the hunting world uh, to give back. Uh, I said, because the hunting saved me. Um, and, and eventually, uh, I've become an outdoor writer uh, because this pastor told me, he said, if you think you're supposed to do something in the hunting world, then that's what you're supposed to do. And even though it might not be really a job, maybe you need to pursue it and make it a job, And, and uh, which is why I'm here today. It's what got me here. So... I eventually become an outdoor writer and wrote for uh, 20 or 30 different uh, magazines across the country uh, just to be able to uh, basically um, uh, uh, speak my mind, speak my piece about how great the outdoors was and that it actually saved me and it's a cool place to be. And if we can get kids and, and even adults into the outdoors and, and get them involved in things that the man upstairs created for us to go enjoy, then it might save them too, like it saved me. And, um, and that's, that's kind of what started it all. So it went from being an outdoor writer, um, to, uh, I don't know, up in my mid twenties, I actually bought and purchased a magazine called Tennessee Outdoor News, uh, which you down in Georgia know that there's a, a really big publication down there called Georgia, mm-hmm. Georgia Outdoor News. Yep. Well, I ended up, I bought the sister company, uh, as a 20 something year old young man. Uh, and ran that business for 10 years. Uh, wow. So I was a, a writer um, and also uh, a publisher of my state's largest hunting and fishing magazine. I had uh, 40 full-time writers that worked for me, graphic designers, and uh, so on and so forth. So it was a, a pretty cool run, and I eventually turned into uh, to television and started doing television. I hosted, uh, over the years, I've hosted Oh, oh, my goodness, four or five different outdoor TV shows now, and that was, uh, the first one was Night Rifles Born to Hunt, uh, which was a night muzzleloader television. Um, I worked for those guys for um, all 14, 15 years before I started working here at CBA now currently, um, but I hosted their TV show. I hosted a show for Summit Tree Stands called Summit High Places, uh, another show for Moultrie uh, Game Cameras called Moultrie's The Hit List, which I co-hosted with uh, some friends of mine, uh, and the last show that I ran was my own show, uh, kind of a career entrepreneur kind of guy. So um, I started my own show called Traveling Hunter, uh, just because that's what, well, that's what my nickname has been since I decided to be an outdoor writer because I traveled and hunted 15, sometimes 18 states a year, depending on what tags I drew. Um, and it, that Traveling Hunter name just kind of stuck to me and, and ended up becoming a TV show on the Outdoor Channel for. Uh, quite a many years too so yeah funny how the the man upstairs has plans for you um you just don't know what they are until you look back and go oh yeah now i know the plan (laughs) 
Yeah, that's true. That's that's a awesome testimony uh, on how the outdoor outdoors like touched you and how you're now yeah. able to spread yeah. that. Well, you you know it's it's funny. I <laughs> since you went ahead and dated yourself, bud. Uh, I grew up. <laughs> I know it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I grew hey, up actually. Too bad. Yeah, no, no, no. But I grew up watching you on TV. Can you believe that? Oh, it's like it now. I appreciate that now. I really feel old. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, when you were when you were citing off all those TV shows, I was thinking about the commercials I used to see. There was one that I never forgot, and and uh, it was a night in hell muzzleloader promo, and one of the dudes jumped in the lake with the muzzleloader. And then came out of it and then shot and hit the bullseye. I don't know if you remember that one or if you were part of it, but I was always so I remember impressed. Thoroughly. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that one thoroughly. That was back when when, when we were uh, really focused on uh, making people understand that, that, you know, if the muzzleloading projectile seeded the grooves and lands of the barrel really good and the ignition was dry, then you could actually hunt in inclement weather uh, because the nemesis of a muzzleloader has always been moisture or, or hunting in bad weather, you know, so that was sure. a commercial we were trying to dedicate to make sure people knew that if you did it right and you had the right gun, you could still hunt when the weather was bad. Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I kind of want to, if if you don't mind, Chase, I'd like to ask, uh, wh- what are you, uh, having come into the hunting industry when there wasn't even a thing to where you are tonight, today, uh, briefly, what are your thoughts on where it is today compared to where it was before? Well, uh, and that can be just like what we talked about earlier. This could be a very long topic sure. and conversation. Um, you know, the upside is, um, uh, well, I'm going to step back. So when I uh, knew that I wanted to uh, try to figure out how to, to get in the hunting industry and make this a lifestyle for me uh, when I was 20, 21, 22, um, the biggest thing that I ran into as a young person trying to get in the hunting world um, and, and there was no social media and stuff like that at that time. I mean, had, again, dating myself, and some of you guys may not believe this is even true, but there was a time when there was no email. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I would have to, if I would want to write for a certain hunting publication or had an idea that I wanted to throw at an editor uh, at a hunting magazine, I had to handwrite him a darn letter. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. My goodness, now I know why I got gray in my beard now. <laughs> um, uh, but um, I, I, the biggest problem was is is they uh, these magazine editors, owners, um, publishers, they would not even uh, in, a lot of times would not even accept or, or my my mail or return a letter to me or anything uh, because I was a young guy. Uh, wanting to write hunting stories or mainly deer hunting stories and how tos um, even though that you know I lived pretty much eight months on the road when I was 21 years old trying to go hunt uh, all over the country wherever I could uh, to be able to harvest an animal to be able to write a story about um, and I remember talking to Eddie Salter I know I'm sure you guys have heard of Eddie Salter oh, yeah. out there oh yeah the turkey man yeah, the turkey man. So I was just with Eddie Salter here the other day up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and uh, we was kind of reminiscing about some of the old times, if you will, and, and of course Eddie's much older than me and he's been in the game a long time, but I remember talking to Eddie at the hunting show and just asking his advice of how in the world does a man um, 
person, individual, uh, pursue a, a dream in the hunting world when you can't even get these outdoor writer editors uh, to give you the time of day to let you write a hunting story. And, and you know, his thought was, well, just keep trying. Um, so it was very point with all that said is, is it was very difficult to, to get your foot in the door because nobody would give you the time of day where – as today, there are so many opportunities for a person that wants to be involved in outdoors uh, in the industry uh, for them, uh, whether him or her, uh, to get in it. It's much easier now because of the ability to uh, get in your DM direct message box or PM message box or uh, find an email online or you know go straight to the company through their social media pages. Um, it creates a lot of opportunity for a lot of people to... Uh, to get involved in the outdoor industry now where 25 years ago it took uh, serious diligence and no quit in my system to get in it because they just wouldn't let you in it. Communication was pretty bad and they didn't want newcomers in it because it uh, got in the way of the, of the old timers that were in there. They just didn't want to give you the time of day. So mm. today... Uh, it is much easier, uh, which gives us the opportunity as a whole to spread the word of how cool the outdoors is. <laughs> right. Chase, he's saying there's a you know, chance. Uh, well, just, I mean, here tonight, I mean, we're, we're dealing with technology tonight. We're doing a podcast. There's three of us on this podcast, and we're from all different states. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it, it gives us the opportunity for, for guys like you to uh, pursue your dream, and that's running a podcast and being part of the hunting industry. It gives you an opportunity to do that where 25 years ago what we're doing now was, was unheard of. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. That's like you were mentioning is like I basically direct messaged you on Instagram, <laughs> asked you a question to see if you would come on the podcast and pretty much got an immediate response from you and that you were uh, you would love to come on the show and talk about muzzleloading and all that where is if like I said, go back to there, and we were running this podcast. We may never be able to get a hold of you. It might have taken us months or yeah. heck a year to even get you uh, on the show if you were even interested in doing that. That is my exact point. And, and tonight we're here talking, and obviously I'm from a different area than where you're from, but at the end of the day, we're the same people. Your driving ambition is to uh, be a self-employed person and have a podcast and be a part of the hunting industry. Uh, and tonight we're going to promote and talk about muzzleloading, uh, which is near and dear to my heart. But in the, at the end of the day, this whole thing, the umbrella over top of us, is that we're promoting the outdoors. So technology gives us an opportunity to do and get in front of a lot more people than, than I could 25 years ago when I was writing uh, just hunting articles, you know. Right. Well, why, why did you pick up the muzzleloader? Was there something special about muzzleloading or more opportunities? So, so that is a very fine question. Um, and, yes, it, it is. So when I, um, uh, when I was talking to Eddie Salter a long time ago, um, he's like, whatever you got to do, just keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. And growing up here in Tennessee, um, I, uh, well, I started out with a bow and then I jumped right into centerfire rifle. But I knew uh, that if I ever wanted to be able to get my foot in the door of uh, magazines uh, or get inside the magazine or get in front of magazine editors, uh, I had to be able to produce a lot of content. And I quickly realized by reading hunting publications like North American Whitetail 
that if I wanted to be taken seriously, I probably needed to shoot some pretty good animals for the photos because photos were very important in the day when you wrote an article. You could be a, a, a mediocre writer, but if your photos were good, you could tell a story. So I figured that, well, it, I, I, need to, I need to be able to shoot uh, or harvest uh, some big bucks and need to be a bunch of them. And I, I started doing some studying, and I realized that uh, where the best whitetails in the country were coming from was the, was the Midwest, and that's Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, over into Kansas, up into the Nebraska area. And I thought, well, I'm not ever going to harvest good deer if they're not where I'm at. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so I need to adapt. Um, and I, uh, I realized that about in 1992, I think, was my first big trip uh, to the Midwest on a tour, if you will, um, that uh, I could not take my 270 uh, that I grew up hunting with because they didn't allow centerfire rifles in the Midwest. It was shotgun or muzzleloader only. Um, so, and I'll step back here just one little bit to, to maybe explain this muzzleloader situation a little better or why I'm so infatuated and have been, is that uh, when I was 20 years old, I worked for Nissan Motor Manufacturing Company uh, here in Middle Tennessee, and uh, I had to make a jump where I wanted to dive in full-time uh, to the outdoor world to try to become an outdoor rider. I knew it was going to take six or eight months of my year to be gone traveling hunting through the midwest so i quit my job at nissan um and i had one week vacation saved up they paid me my week vacation it was 525 dollars so i took that 525 dollars and went after uh a muzzle loader because i knew that's what i had to use in the midwest for a shotgun i knew shotguns at that time were terrible because they were all smooth board and it wasn't accurate for nothing so i'm like I'm going to go buy uh, a muzzle loader. So I took my week's vacation of $525, pretty much all the money I had up, saved up to my name to go buy a muzzle loader so that I could go to the Midwest and hopefully harvest some really good animals. Um, so I took all the money I had and jumped off into my first business business investment, and that was a muzzle loader. Um, I the country, hunting in all these states that had big deer. And they had a really great muzzleloader season. And it, before long, it just it, it just overwhelmed me. Muzzleloading was my passion. Mm. Makes, Makes sense. sense. Just because it gave me the opportunity to hunt in locations um, that, uh, you know, if uh, guys with centerfire rifles couldn't do it. So it was my ticket to big animals, big bucks, uh, my ticket to get more articles wrote, um, which was my ticket to, I won't say success, but to get me up the ladder quicker. Right. And that muzzle would give me that opportunity to do that. I was just wondering, was, was muzzle loading kind of a niche thing back then? Were there a lot of people doing it? Or, like I said, was that just something that something else that kind of set you apart from everybody else? Well, there really wasn't a great lot of people doing it. When I hit the Midwest on, on these tours through the fall, everybody that I hunted with or met uh, while I was in those states were shotgun hunters. Uh, muzzling then was not real popular. Um, the, I call him the, the pioneer of inline muzzling today was Tony Knight, uh, the gentleman who started Knight Rifles or Knight Muzzleloaders out of, actually out of Missouri, but ended up, uh, the company was based out of Centerville, Iowa. Um, he started the company in 1985. So when I got into it, it was in 91. It was 
only Tony Knight uh, and another another company called White, uh, W-H-I-T-E, White Muzzleloaders, um, and they are no longer around today. But they were the only two muzzleloader companies, in essence, then that people knew about. Um, now, the company I work for today, CDA, has been around for a very long time, but the two most popular ones that I was familiar with in 91 and 92 was Knight and White. Okay. So, so it was kind of a niche market just because people didn't want to mess with them. You know, it was easier to hunt with a shotgun that you could load and unload quickly versus dealing with old nasty uh, muscle and propellant. And 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 at that time they weren't real accurate either, but um, they were more accurate than a smoothbore shotgun, which is another reason that I, <laughs> I picked them up and stayed with them. Yeah. What What was that? What was that? That leap like for you? I mean. That seems you're describing that scenario, uh, taking that check and buying a muzzleloader, and I'm sitting here getting anxiety just thinking about what that must have felt like to know that uh, you were going in that direction. You know, it, just like anybody else that jumps into a business endeavor, um, it is a leap of faith. Um, I'm a career entrepreneur. I own a dozen different companies and have over the years. Um, uh, for me, it's, it's now it's not that big of a deal, but it, but it is always that leap of faith. But I, I knew uh, in my heart um, that, that I just wasn't going to accept no. Um, and, and when I get told no, it makes me want to drive even harder. Um, there's one thing ab- ab- about myself that I've learned over the years that uh, my dad was a wonderful man. Um, unfortunately, he's not here anymore, but he was a wonderful man, loved him to death. He did as much for me as he possibly could. But he didn't give me a silver spoon. Uh, he didn't bless me with uh, the best deer hunting farm in the world. He was just a good guy that everybody loved. But he didn't uh, overwhelm me overwhelm me with goods. I guess my point is, is the only thing he blessed me with was drive and ambition, and I got a bunch of it. <laughs> <laughs> when these outdoor writers and magazines would kind of snub me because I was a young kid. Uh, it just made me want to push even harder uh, to be in the hunting industry because I knew that that I, I knew that I made it through my teen years uh, for a reason. Um, you know, I, I got to be honest with you. I come home a bunch of nights when I was a teenager uh, and get up in the morning and the mirrors be tore off my truck because I was so overly intoxicated when I would come home. Now, thankfully, I lived in the country and I just had to go find whose fence I tore up the night before and I go fix the man's fence for him. But I I got home at night. Uh, on a lot of those occasions, um, because the man upstairs had a plan for me, and and I knew eventually I saw and knew and understand that it was to be in the outdoor industry. Um, so when these outdoor riders would tell me no, uh, it just drove me even harder to dig deeper and and um, do whatever it took to uh, hunt hard through the winter time and work hard through the summertime to make as much money as I could, which eventually drove me to uh, owning Tennessee Outdoor News. So just a leap of faith, man. Just That's a leap awesome, of faith. Dude. No different than <laughs> no different when you guys went and bought your first recorder to report record this podcast. It took a leap of faith to go purchase that equipment uh, and hoping it would work. And, and of course, you look, man. We're here right now talking on it. So you know, same scenario. Yeah, yeah. I that, that's cool. That's. Uh... I'd be a liar if I didn't tell you that was inspiring to hear because you, you hit the nail on the head. We'd all we'd all like to be, you know, the goal of the podcast is for Chase and I to be able to travel the, the country and talk to people like you maybe one day in person. So to hear that, you know, it just that just fires me up to no end. 
Well, I can tell you this, from, from a, a career entrepreneur, a person that's always been driven to get out and, and, and succeed, or, or at least dad gum try to succeed and do my best to do it, is the only, um, the only limits we have in our lives are ones that we put on ourselves. If you, in fact, want the best podcast in the world, uh, which I believe you probably have one of the best ones I've been on, you guys are great. If you want the best podcast in the world, the only reason that you don't get it is because you get in your own way from making it happen. Yeah, that's yeah, that's probably fair. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you want to do it bad enough, you'll figure out a way. And that's what I did as a young man was whatever it took um, uh, to reach my goals and and uh, and make it through. And, and uh, you know, sometimes I had to work the weekends at little meaningless jobs um, to, to make some extra money to get that extra beer tag that I wanted when my buddies were out having a good time on the lake on Saturdays and Sundays. But I was driven enough that, that I would give up a Saturday or Sunday go go to the lake or, or go fishing or whatever um, uh, to go to work instead of sure. going and playing. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I knew what I wanted, and I just wasn't going to let nothing stand in my way. That's awesome, man. So so let's talk about those early days of muzzle loading hunting uh did that uh did 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 uh, the uh i don't want to how do i want to say this did the the technology at that time cost you opportunities you know and that's a fine question and yes it did uh, no different than and and not to go back and forward here but um technology back then in the muslim world was like technology for me trying to get a hold of an outdoor rider uh, whereas today the technology is so strong and handy and available, uh, which is the reason we're on this podcast in three different states. The technology is wonderful today, and it was limited back then. And um, you know, um, today uh, I, I'm in my I'm sitting in my gun vault now. Ninety nine percent of everything here is muzzle loaders. Um, wow. It, it, I, it's, I, I've got a problem. It's kind of like an ass. <laughs> you know, um, so I'm standing in my vault, so it tells you how many guns could be in here. But um, uh, they're all they're all muscle loaders. Um, and, and the one that I travel with all fall, I am consistently, uh, at any time I get ready to pull the trigger, I am running sub-MOA groups at 700 yards, which is ridiculous. <laughs> to answer your question, the, the some of the I got two or three dozen muscle loaders here that I had back in the nineties, uh, and and it was cliche to talk about shooting anything past a hundred. Um, right. Wow. And it, you know, just limitations in technology uh, compared to then. And 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 the nineteen ninety muscle loader stuff was way far advanced of you know the old side hammer uh, Daniel Boone days, of course. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So these muscle loaders have definitely increased uh, their. Um, Shooting capacity, their distance and accuracy um, tremendously over the last 20 years. Well, I got a question for you. Uh, this could be to some of our listeners. We hadn't really uh, explained that. And for the people that might not be familiar with muzzle loading, what what is muzzle loader? What is muzzle loading or muzzle loader hunting? Um, so, so basically, any muzzle loader that is on the market today. Um, it's considered a muzzle loader because you load everything down the muzzle, meaning uh, loose powder or a pelletized powder, which would be, I call it the Alka-Seltzer powder. It's a compacted powder uh, propellant. Uh, so loose powder or pelletized powder is poured down the face of the, of the, the gun or down the barrel um, and then followed up by a projectile or a bullet. 
uh, and the ignition source uh, is typically in the back. These smoke loaders that we see today are all inline muzzle loaders, and that inline stands for the ignition source. The ignition source is directly uh, in line and behind the powder charge, and typically today is a 209 shotgun primer, uh, whereas years ago uh, it was a number 11 percussion cap. That makes sense. I never, you know, it never even dawned on me there'd be a, a distinction between the two. There is, and, and there is one in between that, uh, and that is a musket cap. Uh, there's a couple states out west, if there's folks out west listening here tonight, um, uh, there is Idaho and Oregon require you to shoot a musket cap. So in, in the ignition sources of a muscle, there's three, uh, and it's a, it's a one, uh, it, it heat range, I go a one, a five, and a ten. Um, and that number one being a number 11 percussion cap, a number five is a musket cap, and a 10 of the hottest is a 209 shotgun primer. Okay. Now, are there are there any states out there that don't allow you to use, like, a modern inline muzzleloader? Uh, so that's one thing that, that if you are uh, digging into the muzzleloader well across the country, there are a lot of rules and regulations where, as, a archer, uh, he has to follow some rules. Uh, typically, there's some weird states that don't allow you to shoot lighted knocks, um, some odd men, things like that. Uh, the centerfire rifle guy, in most cases, uh, if it's a rifle season, he can use about any centerfire rifle on the market. Um, us guys that are, are really dug into the well of hunting with a muzzle odor as a preference, the states vary heavily on their rules and regulations. Um, through the Midwest and the South, um, most of those are uh, just, uh, well, I think most of, most of the, the muzzleloader seasons are not limited to some kind of limitation. Uh, whereas, like, if you go into the state of Colorado, which is a wonderful state to hunt big game, um, but you got to have a 50 caliber muzzleloader there to hunt elk and bear. Uh, anything else, you can use a 45 caliber. Uh, they do not allow you to shoot with optics. So you cannot shoot it with a scope. It's got to be iron sights only. Uh, you cannot shoot pelletized powder. It has to be loose powder. You cannot shoot a sabot projectile or a sabotaged bullet, which is a bullet with a little plastic um, carrier, if you will. You have to shoot a full bore bullet, meaning the bullet has to be the full diameter of the bore. Uh, so Colorado's a little uh, different when they come to <laughs> yeah. muzzle loaders. Um, and then you got uh, Idaho, you have to shoot an open breech system, meaning that when the gun is closed and hunt ready position, you have to be able to see the ignition source visibly. So the breech has to be exposed to see uh, the primer. Um, you cannot use uh, glass or optics out there either. Um, so if you're choosing to travel across the country with a muzzle, you have to adhere to those rules and regulations, and you need to check them thoroughly because everybody uses it differently. <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah, I knew there were several states out there that had some intricacies uh, related to muzzle loaders that were a little bit different. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's much down for Florida. I think Florida... Is, like I said, as long as you're using, I believe, 45 caliber, yep. you can use a scope. You can use pelletized or loose powder. Um, you can use, yeah, pretty much anything that's offered, like modern, for a muzzleloader you can use. And across the board, most of them are that way. There's just about a half a dozen out there that really pinch you down on what you can do and what you can't do. So 
always good to check uh, local rules and regulations of where you plan on going. But for the most part, it's kind of running what you bronze, you know. Do you do you think right. that some of that harkens back to uh, the idea that certain certain equipment should function with a certain capacity, and that's why they're doing what they're doing, or do you think it's just uh, a lack of updating regulations? Well, you know, and I, I know there's a lot of people fight uh, for muzzling rules and regulations to be changed in some of these states that pinch you down, uh, but I think that maybe it's, it's there trying to keep it to somewhat of a purist form, and, and when I mean purist, there are guys out there in this country that think a modern inline rifle is not a muzzle loader. Um, and, you know, by, you know, distance standing um, or um, muzzle velocity, they're a lot closer to the rifles than they are muzzle loaders. Um, so there's guys out there that want to keep it pure, and that's the old side lock, uh, you know, the Daniel Boone-looking muzzle loaders, mm-hmm. um, big buffalo bullets and things like that. Um, so I think there are some people that like to keep it, um, well, we call them purists, uh, traditionally. Sure. Um, but, you know, that's fine. I, hey, I don't care what they hunt with as long as they hunt with a muzzleloader. Um, <laughs> here's, here's one thing that up in Pennsylvania, which is, which is um, where we've been at here for a while at the uh, NRA Great American Outdoor Show, um, they have always still, even today, hunt with uh, side locks, which is a Daniel Boone style, which has got the old hammer on the side called a side lock, and a flint lock, which takes a rock to ignite the powder in the prison pan that then turns and fire into the barrel where the powder is at. Um, so they are wicked primitive. Um, they just allowed an inline bear season uh, this last year, the first time ever. Oh, wow. Golly, that's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they keep it back. They keep it for real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Oh, man, that is... How do you? Where do you even get a gun like that? It seems antique store. Uh, in the antique store. Um, there's a few companies out there that. Well, let me take that back. There's one company out there that is a, is a larger company. Uh, tradition. They still make um, because they're from that portion of the country up in the northeast. Okay. They still do make some of the old five lock, five hammer, uh, muscle other for those areas up there. And, um, I, I mean, I, I literally just flew in from Harrisburg up here, um, and I bet you I had 150 people over a period of a nine-day course that was ran up there uh, ask for, hey, you guys still make sidewalk muzzleloaders? <laughs> well, no, man, the Smithsonian <laughs> called me, and they won't do things back, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to 2020. You know, uh, yeah. but, uh, but there's people up there that, that do love to hunt with them, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I myself, I'm more progressive fella. If I can drive a Lamborghini, <laughs> guess what I'm going to be driving? <laughs> Not a Ford Taurus. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think I'm in that category with you as well. I've got... Uh, I struggle enough down here uh, in the deep south to kill a deer. I don't want to put any uh, <laughs> further re- uh, restrictions on myself. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, you man. know, years years ago there was a man come to me and say, hey, man, you know that uh, you, know, you can uh, own one of these Barrett 50 BNG uh, 
rifles. When he's, you know, these big 2,000 yard shoot through tanks kind of guns, I'm like, what in the world am I going to do with that? I can't shoot no deer with that. But if I can own one, I want one, though. <laughs> I got one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> that's, that's the gun you break out whenever your daughter brings home uh, brings home a boyfriend. You just lay that across the kitchen table. They're not even going to bring him home. I could from a long ways away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's it. That's it. <laughs> one of them 50 cal round, yeah. rounds down range. Uh, shot across the bow. Anybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. Well, Tony, we we've got a uh, bunch of listeners that are that are just getting into hunting, that are that kind of new to hunting and whatnot. What would you suggest if they wanted to just kind of get into muzzleloading? What what would be your recommendations? Oh, you know, I have to say, of course, I'm biased. Um, I, I do work for the largest muzzleloader manufacturer in the world, and that's CBA, or originally was Connecticut Valley Arms back in 1971. Um, we make a a muzzleloader called a wolf. A, a wolf is a is a uh, very entry level, uh, very cost effective, or very efficient, easy on your pocketbook muzzleloader. Um, you know, I think the top end of that gun is going to be about three hundred dollars. Um, just because it's inexpensive doesn't mean it's not a good gun. It shoots very well. Uh, Fifty caliber across the board is the most common caliber. The most available. Uh, projectiles, uh, and pretty much can be picked up about any store in the country that, that's an outdoor store, of course. Um, so if I was going to be uh, pushing or putting somebody into muzzleloading today that were brand new and had never experienced it, number one, they need to get a gun that fits them, uh, that feels good in their hand, uh, that doesn't break their bank in case they don't uh, want to get into it and stay into it. Um, and, and then the most common thing is 50 calendar, so it's easy for them to find uh, accessories for it so they don't get frustrated with trying to find stuff for it and bullets and things like that. So, um, entry level muzzle loading is, is still accurate muzzle loading today with our technology. So, just because you buy something cheap, don't mean it's, a, I hate to say, but a kind of a piece of junk. You know, it's not that right. anymore. Right. Yeah. And that, that gun comes with a scope, correct? Uh, it comes with or without. It's up to the, okay. the person. I, I know that there's, um, some guys out there in the world that, that don't really care, but then I also run into people that are scope snobs and they want, and I don't mean that in a bad way, they just really like good glass. And So we offer it available to the general population with a piece of glass on it or without. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it actually is a wonderful kit. That happens to be what I have. Um, I got it on sale after the season. I think I got it like the case, the cleaning kit, the scope uh the the tag soup recipe that came with it everything i think was like 225 out the door on sale See? and it there you go and it was perfect and I'll, I'll be honest with you out to 100 yards i'm not a very good marksman i'll go ahead and put that out there out to 100 yards i am supremely confident in that firearm you know and, and it is again it's entry level but it's it's a great it is a great gun and probably the number one selling muzzleloader I would say in the country today, I can it, see we sell a load of them, and I'm sitting here looking at, I don't know, maybe a dozen of them here in my vault here, um, and my my two boys, of course, they're, they're a little older now, but they started all Starlet Wolf. My wife had one or two or ten that she really liked, um, 
you know, so they're they're really great guns. And and if I had to if I had to grab one today, I would feel totally confident, just like what you said. I feel totally confident going hunting with it right now, just even though it was a two hundred twenty five dollar gun. Right. So while that's a cheaper gun, I imagine there are things that you can do to make it a more uh, effective, longer range gun. You're probably not going to, you know, be doing what you're doing at, at 700 yards, but I imagine you could probably make that gun work pretty well out to 200, right? Yeah, so, so here's another reason that I am really heavily drawn to muzzle loading is you have the ability to tweak these guns to um, to make them perform better. There's there's a mechanical uh, way of operating these things, so. Um, I'm into classic cars and hot rods and things like that just because I can customize them. And when you go to the store and you get a 270 or a 300 Win Mag or a 65 Creedmoor, you, you go to the shelf and you pick up some ammunition that somebody else has loaded for you, and you don't really get hands-on of making that 270 really go or that 65 really go. You just got to get what's available on the shelf. Where in this muzzleloading game is... I can take I can take a, a CBA wolf. I can downcharge it to 50 grams of powder. And when my when my youngest son was 10 years old, he was smashing deer with it at 100 yards with 50 grams of powder. I can in turn <laughs> take that same gun and load it to 100 grams of powder or 120 grams of powder, and I can take it out west and shoot 200 yards with it. Same gun. All you gotta do is tweak your loads a little bit, change your bullet sizes a little bit. So it gives you an opportunity to really customize whatever you're going after. I can hunt armadillos in South Alabama, or I can hunt elk in the mountains of Montana with the same gun just by changing my bullet uh, and my powder charge. Same gun. Yeah. I think that's really cool. Oh, I, I, and there, if you if you get to talking to a gun, I think that's what makes really this whole like muzzleloading is so appealing to me because, like you said, it's such an interactive process. And when we got that gun... It handles pellets pretty well, but then we started experimenting with loose powder, and th- there we are at the gun range, my dad and I, and we are, like, dialing in, like, well, 85 grains, it started to, to open up here a little bit, and so let's put it down to 70. Like, you could really, like, dial it in to the five-grain mark on your on your powder charge, and then you start, you know, playing with different projectiles, and, and it's 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 almost like a reloading situation for, for, for rifles, but without having to have all the reloading equipment. That is correct. And and, and another cool side of it, like I said, my, my youngest son was running a wolf in 50 grains of powder. Um, when when we were on the range and, and we would sit the powder out and the bullets out and the primers out, the cleaning patches and all this kind of stuff, which, you know, I'm saying this, it sounds like, oh, my gosh, this is, it takes a lot of stuff to make these things go. But my point is, is my son and any other young person or adults that's just getting into it can look at all this stuff laid down on the bench before they go to shooting on the range, and they can understand the mechanical uh, makeup behind what makes these guns operate. Hey, here's your powder. This is what makes it go bang. Here's your bullet. This is what is going to harvest an animal. Here's your primer. This is what actually makes everything work. Without this, you've got nothing. You've got a piece of pipe with some powder in it and a bullet shoved in it. You know, so... You can understand the mechanics of it, which is, I think, gives ultimate respect uh, to the gun itself because you really know what makes it work. Whereas if you got a the 6.5 or the 270, 
you just get a bullet, you shove it in, you run the bolt down, you click the safety off, and you squeeze the trigger, it goes bang. If you sure. don't really understand what makes all that happen, a muzzleloader you do because you put it in one piece at a time. Absolutely. No, I, I think it's fun. It's it's one of those things where if you're an off-season dude looking for something to play with, a muzzleloader is a really fun thing. Last year I was in the backyard. We, we bought a piece of property that I can actually shoot from my back, my back step from now, and it was so much fun. I, I had a friend of mine who was, like, co- coaching me through it because, again, I'm primarily a bow hunter up until here recently, and he's like, well – Here's this bullet. I'm gonna send you this bullet and this and this sabot, and you know you put it in there with this charge and, and send me a photo. Wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. What did you just call that? What? A, what? A, what? Sabot. 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 Yeah. Let me tell you. Let me, let me tell you right now. I've been in the muzzleloading industry for a long time. I have never heard it called a sabot. <laughs> well. <laughs> Leave it to a South Georgia boy to mess it up for uh, for you. <laughs> oh man, I cannot wait to duplicate this or something. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I didn't even know that. I just thought it was awesome. Go ahead. Yeah. Listen, one day I'm gonna hear somebody call it a sabot and be like, Tony, Tony, pass that on. Yep, I know where that came from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's, what? Okay. that's right there. That's a good highlight reel right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you actually say it so I don't feel stupid? <laughs> Uh, actually, uh, everybody in the world will call it a savage. Savage. Okay. Actually, it's actually called a sabo. Sabo. Okay. Be silent. Well, then, if you want to get all prim and proper, and, and <laughs> I've gone so far in one direction. I'm gonna go the the, the exact opposite. So I'm gonna refer to it as a sabo from now on. But, <laughs> <It's a sabo. laughs> but uh, yeah, so he sent me these sabos and and, the, and these bullets, and here's the part of the charge. And I sent him a photo. And he was like, "Oh, well, back up even further and take a shot and, and tell and send me a photo." And he, we we just went round and round for hours, you know, slinging lead down range. And it was cool to see how that gun interacted. You know, it, it it's a it's a fun thing to do in the summertime. I guess is what I'm getting at. Without a shadow of a doubt, and that's what has drugged me in so deep into the muzzling world is for the ability to be able to customize them uh, and tweak them. I, I absolutely love it. Oh yeah, that's. I remember what, like I said, when I when I first got into muzzleloading, and I mean, well, my first experience with a muzzleloader was was not was not a great one. Um, I I wasn't familiar with muzzleloading, and my father-in-law, I mean, he's a big time hunter. He took me out. He's like, here, here's my muzzleloader, and then he, of course, he had it loaded with like a magnum, like 150 grains of powder, and uh, I had this deer come out, and at, back with these muzzle loaders, like I say, a lot of times they'll have like these bullet drop compensating reticles. And he had kind of told me what they meant. And I had arranged the deer and I'm like, okay, well, I think he said that it was this, <laughs> it was this drop point or whatnot. And I wasn't even thinking about it. And I had the gun kind of propped up. Well, I didn't have my shoulder on, I didn't have it shouldered very well. So when I pulled that trigger with that 150 grain magnum charge, I mean, it hit me right square in the face. I'm talking about oh. right in the nose, cut me like right in between the eyes. I thought I'd been punched by Mike Tyson <laughs> at the uh, at the time because I was, I mean, and to insult injury, I didn't even hit the deer because I had the wrong, I had the wrong uh, drop on him. 
because of where I thought it was, and I wouldn't have seen the deer run off anyways because I thought I had just been knocked, knocked out by somebody. I got blood screaming down my face, and that that's my very first experience with a muscle hunter. <laughs> well, I can tell you this. If you hunt, hunt long enough and you shoot a muscle long enough, it's going to happen again. Right. Right. <laughs> Luckily, it hasn't. I kind of... <laughs> um, I've always been like, okay, you got this thing shouldered, right? You got this thing shouldered before you pull this trigger. And of course I've gone down with the charge. I think here, here over the last five, six years, I've been, like I said, I did more investigating into muzzle loading and realized that, well, you don't really need that, um, much of a propellant in there. And I've, I've I dropped it down to a hundred grains and I mean, a hundred grains doesn't really, um, kick very much at all. Um, and in my point of view but yeah right now i'm running a, a well it's it's a little bit older gun it's the uh i started off with the optima the cva optima and then after a few years i kind of upgraded to the uh, the apex the cva apex and they were at the store they were selling it as a muzzleloader because i know that's one of the guns that y'all were selling that you could swap out the barrels um and i was like well i'll shoot this thing for a while and then I had a, I just had my son at the time and I was like, well, when he gets bigger, uh, I can, I could possibly change out that barrel and, uh, put it to a rifle barrel or something else. And then I'm sure, and I was thinking, I was like, well, the muzzleloader technology had been getting better, um, since I had started muzzleloading, what, 12, 13 years ago and, uh, to where it is at today, <laughs> which is one of the reasons I had messaged you, um, was about the, uh, what is the CVA Paramount? Y'all's new long-range muzzleloader? Yes, sir. That's when we introduced last year uh, in 2019. And this year, we just introduced the new Paramount Pro, which is literally the Lamborghini of muzzleloaders. So, yeah, things have changed. Yeah, yeah. They, they've they've changed quite a bit, like I said, even since I started using uh, muzzleloaders. But one of the things I always thought was unique and with muzzleloaders is down here in Florida – I'd noticed that our rut kind of was in line with muzzleloading. So that's kind of the reason uh, I got into it. And then, like I said, I got into it with the, the Optima. And then Florida changed its seasons and then it expanded where muzzleloading was now a, a two-week period. Um, and so I was like, well, I'm going to upgrade muzzleloaders. I'm going to get something a little bit better. And I wanted to be able to extend my range because I was always of that same assumption that muzzleloaders were good out to 100 yards and I knew these – more uh like modern muzzleloaders like you could reach out and touch them and i remember the first time that i shot a deer at uh right at 200 yards with with a muzzleloader and i was tickled to death and i remember telling some people that i'd shot the deer with a muzzleloader at 200 yards and of course none of them believed me they all thought that i was full of it they're like no way there's no way you shot a deer at 200 yards with your muzzleloader it's a hundred yard gun um and i was like no it's not i was like like you guys need to do the research and look into these things. I was like, the the technology is getting better. I was like, look at YouTube. I was like, you can go to YouTube and see people making much longer shots than 200 yards with uh, these muzzle loaders. So I think it's like I said, I think it's cool. One of the things that that I think has has changed is just we as human beings are um, I don't know maybe thinking about it a little bit more because I mean I'm sitting here looking at a bunch of muzzleloaders that are totally capable of shooting long range, but I remember when we was building them uh, in the early 90s that we literally thought 100 yards was, was it. Don't, don't shoot past 100 yards. But if you think about it now, and I have no idea why we didn't think about it then, but 
after 100 yards, the bullet don't vaporize and disappear. Right. It goes somewhere. <laughs> you just need to figure out where the heck it's going. So yeah. my, my point is that today's optics has uh, enabled us with these scopes that you're talking about. I heard you mention with the BDC reticles or the, the bullet drop compensating reticles, which gives you basically hash marks of, to bring the gun elevation up to compensate for the bullet fall. Um, and, and even more today now is these scopes with all the tactical turrets on it or the adjustable big tall turrets that allows you to adjust your scope for bullet fall. And and we have brand, or brought that technology from the scope world into the muzzleloading world, and we now realize that after 100 yards, the bullet don't disappear. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps going. Yeah. Um, so, so now, I, I, I guess we're just slow to evolve, maybe a little bit, but um, um, the, the muzzleloaders years ago, everybody was 100 yards, but if we would have thought more into it, we probably could have pushed them a whole lot further like they're doing today. Um, we just didn't have the scope technology. Um, everything we used then was a 3 by 9 by 40 millimeter scope of some sort, <laughs> and there was no such thing as a adjustable turret. There was no such thing as a ballistic reticle or none of that. It was just a standard crosshair reticle and 3 by 9 That's all you got. Um, right. So I, I think that limited, limited us a lot back in the day to where we don't have that now. Yeah, like I said, the, how much of the, how much do you think that is to blame? You said we 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 probably could have pushed it further. I mean, we've been shooting long distance with rifles for a long, long time. Um, how much of that do you blame on a lack of like the flow of of communication? Uh, I think there's a lot there. Um, um, and another thing I think too, and this is in the same line, but it's in the projectile. You know, if you um, or bullets, uh, I, I guess I should say. If you think about it, and if you're a long-range distance shooter in the centerfire world, one of your one of your uh, course of action to figure out what you're going to shoot is the BC of a bullet or the BC of that projectile. And that BC is the ballistic coefficient. Uh, and in layman terms or redneck terms, is how well that sucker cuts through the wind. The higher the BC, the better it cuts through the wind. And I'm going to tell you, up until three years ago, I don't know anybody in our muzzleloading industry that ever considered discussing the ballistic coefficient of a muzzleloading bullet. We just built bullets, and they shot good, they shot good. Some were flat nose, some were flat uh, uh, flat base. Uh, I mean, now we're shooting boat tails, a really long ogive or long pointed bullet, um, and we're... Uh, is dug into uh, understanding the bullet and how to build the bullet as we are about building the gun now. Um, so it comes down to technology in the glass, the technology in the bullet manufacturing, um, probably more so than anything at this point in time. Right, yeah. kind of all goes hand in hand with each right. other. Yes, it does. That makes sense. Well, what... What what muzzle loader are you taking out to the woods? What what is your setup? Uh, it, well, uh, currently today, as I'm sitting here, uh, my gun of choice through through the entire uh, 2019 or fall season of last year was the new Paramount Pro, uh, which is um, uh, we just released in Vegas here a couple weeks ago uh, as a new gun for 2020. Um, Last year, uh, we had three of them, uh, all three prototypes. One of them I have, and I'm staring at right now. 
um, that travel with me all fall. Um, it, it is like we were joking around earlier. It's the Lamborghini and muzzleloaders. Um, we took three years to build the gun. Everything on the gun is precision, just like a precision long range rifle would be. Um, the bullet was being built at the same time we built the gun, and we considered the front and center weight of the bullet, uh, the lead density of the bullet, um, uh, how thick the copper jacketing should be to con- uh, control expansion at 50 yards versus 400 yards, the ballistic coefficient of the bullet. So it took three years to build the gun, but it took three years to build the bullet, too. Um, and that's, it's kind of race car technology, basically. They're going to how to make this bullet cut through the wind uh, and check wind drag and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the Paramount Pro is my gun of choice here today. But, you know, you talked about shooting that CVA Apex uh, when it was uh, on the market. Uh, of course, an interchangeable uh, barrel gun from a 50 caliber muzzle loader to a 270 or a 300 wind. Um, that gun there at that time was my gun of choice too. And one of my highly favorites still today. Um, but you know, the thing with technology is, is all the models that we build, whether it's the Wolf, the Optima, the, anything in the Acura line and now anything in the Paramount line, they're all going to be race cars in their own right. They're all going to be proven performers. Um, but the latest greatest is the Paramount Pro. Right. And you were, I think you kind of mentioned earlier that you were, y'all were reaching out to, what is it, like 700 and something yards with that gun now with pretty good accuracy? So this is uh, the, the, the Paramount, um, except for our Colorado edition. Maybe I told you Colorado was a little bit different. Um, <laughs> we just introduced one also in a 50 caliber, but our, our baseline um, on the Paramount is it's a 45 caliber. It shoots a full bore bullet a power belt bullet, um, 280 grain. Uh, it has the highest ballistic coefficient of any muzzleloading bullet on the market today uh, at a .333. Uh, and, and if you don't uh, or haven't play, played with DCC of a muzzleloading bullet, typical muzzleloader bullets have a BC of about 150, and this bullet is .333. So it cuts through the wind like a NASCAR race car does. Um, so it's a 45 caliber uh, muscle velocity, 2,406 feet per second, which is wicked fast. And we just did a, a deal with Sportsman's Warehouse, a, a big hunting uh, chain store, a big box store uh, from out west, and we were running it at 735. And we were shooting sub-MOA. Of course, this is getting like all technical. But we were shooting sub-MOA. Uh, at 735 yards, and that's a seven-inch group or less. 735 <laughs> yards. Wow, that's nuts. It ain't it, it ain't no joke. <laughs> Tony, if you went back 20 years ago, would you, and I told you you were going to have a muzzle loader that 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 did accomplish that, would you have believed me? I will take this to the same scenario as back 20 years ago. I didn't know we'd have cell phones <laughs> 25 years ago. So, uh, so you know, I mean, uh, I grew up on a phone that you had to go. You had to spin the darn thing. So, uh, no, um, 
with and, and even sitting here in this room that I'm sitting in right now, I, I look at hundreds of muzzle loaders, and most of them I have hunted with and traveled with and filmed uh, at least a single TV show or TV episode with over the last 25 years. They all were proven performers at their time. Um, it's just today uh, our technology is so amazing, and and our our uh, I guess I won't say that our people are smarter, but uh, technology is more readily available, and that's not just in in uh, a bullet or a better cell phone or a faster, more efficient car. I mean, the the machinery, a CNC machine, uh, and and these machines that we use to build all this stuff are so much more precise and precision to where that it doesn't surprise me today, but I would have never believed that that I'm sitting here looking at. Two muzzleloaders that I am 100 percent confident after 700 yards with. Never would have believed it. <laughs> but, but you know, I'm sitting here looking at a, at a wall full of bows too, and 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 I love, I still love the bow hunt, but I I, I don't indulge in it as much as I do muzzleloader hunter hunting. But I mean, I see on you know different than everybody else. I'm on social media too, so I look on social media and I and I see and hear guys talking about shooting 100 yards with their bows. Yeah, right. that's seven hundred yards with a muzzle loader. I mean, it's yeah. it is it's next level stuff. And and I myself, I am looking at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven fully equipped bows hanging here on my wall. And I could not imagine going out and trying to shoot a hundred yards with either one of them. And they're all top end bows and all set out to the to the max of you know best sights and best rest and best right. carbon stabilizers and all that kind of stuff. But I think, it, you know, I, I guess my point with all this is, is these these bows are probably totally capable of shooting 100 yards. Um, but it's just like Charlie Daniels. Um, Charlie Daniels' fiddle probably don't sound as good in my hand as it does his. Yeah. Right. To be quite honest with you. <laughs> um, so so it, it, just, it comes down to the, the fiddle player, uh, not the fiddle, or the bow shooter, not the bow, or the man behind the muzzleloader. Um, not so much the muzzleloader today, but uh, we build really good stuff, but but you have to spend time with it too. Right. Would do you think they'll ever kind of be like a cap or a limitation, maybe put on muzzleloaders with them been, being able to reach out to distances That's that much? That's a good much? question. That's a really good question. And that is a very fine question, and one that we discuss internally often um, to uh, to the point of, you know, are these states uh, going going to limit us? To, to you know, something else. I know, like I said, you know, Colorado's a little different. They put limitations on it. But, you know, um, it's just really technology that's got us to be able to shoot this distance. It's not that it's not a muzzleloader anymore. Um, there are guys out there that, that are really making it, they're pushing the envelope. Um, one that, that myself or uh, my brand, TBA, will never be into, but there are some guys running these muzzleloaders with smokeless powder. Which is the same powder that you'd run in a centerfire rifle. Um, I see at some point there might be some limitations on it, and there is some states that, that do limit that. Um, but as long as we're shooting a standard muzzleloading bullet with standard muzzleloading powder, I, I don't see that we'll ever get limited. Um, you know, uh, some say in our organization, you know, what is our next step? How do we? How do we build a better mousetrap? mousetrap? How do we build a better gun than we built with this Paramount series of muzzleloaders and this Paramount Pro that is currently just now uh, being released? 
I don't know how we're going to build it because we built this to the highest standards uh, known to engineers that, that we have our hands on. I don't know how we're going to build it even better, to be honest right. with you. With, but you, you may have said that 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I, and I said, As well. I said that 20 years ago. I thought 20 <laughs> years ago that we had the baddest iron muscle loader ever invented. Right. And we do it at that time. You know, I, right. I don't know. It's 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 very interesting, and I uh, again I will tell you I'm a very blessed human being uh, to have been involved in the muscle loading world over a period of 25 years now, and to to see the evolution and and I have that evolution here in this room I'm sitting in from from I mean I got side locks from the 50s and and in lines of the 90s to the Ferraris and Lamborghinis in lines of 2020 um it, it's pretty impressive and as our people get smarter and our machinery gets better um there's no doubt if i'm still blessed to be on this earth 20 years from now and still in this game i'm sure that i will look back on our podcast when when you guys said we were shooting sabots and, and <laughs> oh god <laughs> they might they might be called they might be called sabots in 20 years because they're like robot <laughs> They're robot projectiles. <laughs> See, I, I'm poking, I'm poking at you, man. I know, I mean it. you, I know but, it. it's um, worthy. <laughs> um, but uh, so, yes, and, and uh, I, who knows where we'll go? But you know, uh, us as a brand at CBA, uh, we're we we. It's just a better gun. That's it, and at the end of the day, that's our slogan. It's just a better gun, and it is just a better gun. And uh, I'm sure. You know, 20 years from now, that we'll we'll have a even better gun. We just have to baby step our way and progress that direction. But right now, um, uh, we're at the top of the heap with, with our Paramount uh, series of muzzle loaders for sure. Right, and I'm like I said, in, with the improvement in technology and all that, I, I believe that it also helps get more people involved and maybe get more people into muzzle loading yeah. when they realize of what the capabilities are of these muzzle loaders. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I know when I first saw that gun, I mean, I was just like, oh, I've got to have this thing. <laughs> like you said, the Lamborghini. I was like, man, I've, I was like, well, sorry, Apex, you're going to have to move aside for a little while or my son can shoot it. Or so Here's the scenario, too. Um, you know, we're talking about uh, adjustable uh, glass or scopes with adjustable turrets and ballistic drop charts inside reticles and all of this stuff, but but here's another key piece that that we have brought in from the centrifire world into the muzzleloading world, just like dealing with DC of bullets basically come from the centrifire world. Um, you know, uh, on your apex, you're running a, a set of rings and bases that is uh, basically have the scope running square with the barrel or parallel with the barrel. On these long-range muzzleloader paramount that we're shooting, we're running 20 MOA picatinny rail that's a 20 minute of angle picatinny rail meaning if you're not into moa and things like that or minutes of angle that means that the scope does not run parallel with the gun or with the barrel the back end of the scope is 20 moa taller than the front end so the scope actually runs downhill pointed towards the barrel Uh, but it gives us the ability uh, for greater adjustable turret adjustment which gets the gun out further distance um so technology in the bullet the gun the scope and also 
a picatinny rail or the, the, the base that you have on it uh, allows us to get these guns further out. So uh, there's, a, there's technology in, in every little bitty piece of, of this pie or this equation to make it all work. Yeah, I can see why it took three years <laughs> of work to, to yeah. get that thing to be able to do what it's doing. Yes, and, 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 and over that three-year period of time, technology changed, and we changed with it. And and um, uh, and, and fortunately, um, I'm just a redneck from Tennessee, but we really have some great engineers that work for our brand, um, and, and uh, they work in the centerfire world because we manufacture centerfire bolt-action rifle, too, under the CVA brand now as well. Um, so they're very, very smart uh, engineers that have lifelong um history in gun smithing um and and even uh, a little bit deeper than that uh, a lot of our engineers and gun designers uh, in our uh, company uh were trained by the united states military which you know what kind of technology is there oh, um, yeah. a, a lot of our engineers uh retired from the united states military uh many branches of that but they all come out of in most cases a quantico or something like that and they're they were um, oh my goodness! I'm sorry. I I, I cannot tell you the name because I can't remember it. Um, uh, but basically, a weapon engineer um, that retired from the military, and and of course, uh, you know most folks in the military are, are, are really good people, and they have a good work ethic, and they're hardcore individuals because that's what they have been trained to do. And when they retire, we hire them to work for our brand, so they're however long 15 20 years um in the military gunsmithing now we have that technology in the cba family as well for our new bolt action rifles and our new long range muzzle loaders wow (laughs) (laughs) okay so there's a a a metric boatload of science going into these guns (laughs) (laughs) and experience very very qualified people these aren't just uh these aren't Chases and Walters putting together your muzzleloaders for you. <laughs> no, 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 no. These are guys. These are hardcore guys. Um, um, pretty, uh, pretty inter- intricate group of individuals, and, and very blessed to have people like that working for us to be able to yeah. help us take it to the next level in the muzzleloading world and, and the the bolt action world uh, that we're into now as well. You know, I, I can't come up with an equivalent off the top of my head, but. For a guy that's as into to muzzleloaders as you are, working with them must be like a dream come true in and of its own right. I mean, that's just that. I guess that'd be the equivalent of me being able to help develop a compound bow of my own choosing or something. You know, that's just that 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 would set me over the moon. I don't know if I'd ever sleep. I'd just be working all the time on it. But it's pretty easy to work uh, in 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 our game because we well, I love it so much and and. Um, you know, uh, Saturday or Sunday, uh, it, it, it's work all the time, but sure. it's, it's fun. It's fun work. And being able to work with people like that, I, number one, I, I'm not a real smart guy, um, but I, I do know the reason that, that I get to do what I do and, and continue to do today and hopefully will do tomorrow is because there's great men and, men and women across uh, this country uh, that have dedicated their lives to protect our butts on a daily basis. And when I'm in Iowa in a tree stand for 10 or 15 days or on a mountain in Montana for 10 or 15 days chasing elk, uh, there are people over there protecting my butt to be able to, for, uh, to, to be able to allow me to do that. Um, or, or if you get up and you work at Walmart, there's people 
uh, in the United States military that are protecting our butt. So you can go work at Walmart. Um, so to be able to work with these guys one-on-one and hear their stories and, and, and what they have done, uh, and I knew they were over there doing that while I was in a tree stand somewhere or filming a TV show in Newfoundland or whatever the case may be, uh, it, it is pretty, um, uh, I guess, humbling. Um, I'm not sure what the right uh, description for that is, but it is pretty amazing uh, to spend time with them and, and hear their stories and then see their input um, to make my passion even better, and that's build these muscle odors and these rifles even better. So, yes, to answer a long-winded um, answer to your question is yes, it is uh, <laughs> a very large blessing to be able to go spend time with these guys and and uh, and work with them hand in hand. That's awesome, man. I'm I'm envious of you. <laughs> no no need for that man I, I put my pants on just like you do every day I just really 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 wanted to do it a long time ago right. <laughs> we agree yep well you want hey do you want to uh, let's ask let's let's ask some of the uh, listener submitted questions that's a great um, idea I was just pulling those up actually and uh, and there there were a bunch of questions but a lot of them they, they kind of mixed together they did um that we had so we we just kind of boiled it down to uh four questions and you're i mean you're with cva one of the the questions was is um what are your thoughts on like the new traditions nitro fire and federal fire stick primer powder system well that is uh, the hottest topic in the muscling world today as we speak right now um that is the hottest topic um uh, at this point, uh, I do know, and, and, and it, uh, I have been at a trade show uh, since uh, we left Shotro, which is where this fire stick was introduced. Um, I do know the last I heard uh, that it was considerable, uh, considered, sorry, considered uh, by the Fed as not a muzzle loader. It is considered, and again, this is the information could have changed over the last six or eight days that I was uh, dug into the well of a trade show. Um, but uh, it was considered a cartridge rifle, meaning okay. it was not really legal in a lot of the muzzleloading fields, and it had to be transferred to a gun dealer. Interesting. Um, and any muzzleloader uh, is considered a muzzleloader, not a firearm, just a muzzleloader. So basically, if you ordered a a muzzleloader off the CDA website or any website in the country, it would ship straight to your home without having to go through a 4473 transfer and a background check uh, and to be transferred transferred to a gun dealer. It just ships to your home like a pair of socks off Amazon. Um, but this fire stick gun, um, it does have to go through the 4473 transfer. It has to go through a gun dealer. It is not considered a muzzleloader. It's considered a firearm. Okay. Wow. I didn't know that. Uh, and, to my, and, and to my knowledge, um, there's only one state, and again, it could have changed since the last I was caught up to speed, but there was only one state uh, that actually deemed it legal to utilize in a muzzle-loading season, and that was Missouri. Okay. Huh. That's... My personal take on it is, and again, it's just a personal take, is 
we talked about this earlier, how that you can, you can manipulate these muscle loaders and shooting different loads to do different things. And their adjustability gives you the ability to tweak them and make them shoot better. Um, whereas with the fire stick, it only comes available in two grain charges. And that is a 100 grain and a 120 grain charge. Um, and, and these muscle loaders, sometimes they're a little finicky, like a, they're like a turkey gun. You know, some turkey guns like a, like four shot and others like six. Yep. Um, these muzzleloaders are the same way. Sometimes you got to work with them a little bit. They all just don't re-steal at 700 yards. You got to play with them a little bit. Uh, and that nitro fire stick uh, does not allow you the ability uh, to tweak or change or work with a powder charge that works best for that gun. Um, and then av- availability. Um, it's going to take two, three years to fill the market up uh, to where that you can even find those um, available. In different locations across the country, um, right. so it's going to be interesting. I, I, it, that's still a very, very uh, new topic for all of us, and one that is very uh, high on the radar that we we're paying attention to. So, what is what is the ideal bullet powder combination for you for whitetail two hundred yards and under? One hundred and ten grains of black horn two hundred and nine, and a three hundred grain bullet. So, uh, I'll. I'll uh, break into that just a little bit because sure. today um, every muzzleloader on the market today is what we consider a magnum and that's whether CVA makes it uh, Tradition, Thompson Center Knight um, they're all considered magnum meaning in most cases they will shoot 150 grains of powder um, but it's, that is kind of the Tim the tool man tailor scenario you know beggar's better more is better. <laughs> it shoots 150. Right. I want to shoot 150 grains of power. That's the best. That's the biggest. That's the maddest. Um, but, you know, I, I guarantee you, if we go sit in our car or truck in our driveway and we look at the speedometer, they're probably going to say it'll run 120 or 150 miles an hour on the speedometer. Right. But I can probably guarantee you it don't handle as good there as it does about 65 miles an hour. Um <laughs> You know, the same scenarios in these muzzleloaders. Just because they'll shoot 150 don't mean that's where it needs to be. Um, a lot of times what we find is pushing them at maximum capacity uh, builds big chamber pressure, uh, which makes the bullets fly very fast. You do get more speed out of them that way, but a lot of times it pushes them so hard that they get erratic uh, and they're not as accurate as they should be. So if you back them down, that's the sweet spot that I have kind of found is 110 grains. Uh, and again, it comes to this adjustability and that where that fire stick limits you. But 110 grains of loose powder uh, or black horn 209, um, it, it seems to be middle of the road and works good across the board. Um, and then the reason that I say that the 300 grain bullet uh, is also optimum to go with that 110 grains is um, the, uh, as a whole, the world always leans towards a 250 grain bullet. Um, they look at a 250-grain bullet being lighter, of course, than a 300-grain bullet. But at the end of the day, it's a it's not as good of a choice as a 300-grain bullet. And and there'd be some listeners listeners maybe say, well, why was why would you not choose the 250 over the 300? So here's, there's multiple reasons. Uh, number one, uh, when you go from a 250-grain bullet to a 300-grain bullet, that bullet does not get fatter. If it got fatter, it wouldn't go down the barrel. So it has to get longer to add those 50 grains of body weight to that bullet. And when that bullet gets heavier, 
towards that 300 grain mark, it gets longer, so it stabilizes better in flight. No different you. You, you mentioned being an archer. Um, back years ago, everybody shot an overdraw on their bow and had a little bit of short arrow because it made them super fast. Well, they were so super fast that people realized over two or three years that you couldn't hit the brawl side of the barn if you were standing at the barn because they were <laughs> super fast, but they wasn't accurate. So same with these bullets. When you go back to a long arrow, they fly better. They might not be as fast, mind you, but they fly better because they're longer. They stabilize better in flight. And a 300-grain bullet will always stabilize better in flight than a 250 because it's longer. Um, and, and with the muzzleloader, we, we harvest with kinetic energy, meaning we, it's, it's how hard we hit the, our, our prey or our, our quarry that we're going after. It's how hard we hit it. That's kinetic energy. It, um, it's like Mike Tyson hitting you versus uh, you know a 100-pound guy. Mike Tyson's got much more kinetic energy than the 100-pound guy's got. And that's what in the muzzleloader world we want. We want kinetic energy. So that 300-grain bullet is bigger, got more body weight, so it's got more kinetic energy. That's the second reason. Now, we're going to go, the the third is what we talked about earlier, this long-range shooting stuff. And what I'm going to say next is going to be a very hard pill to swallow for anybody (laughs) listening to this podcast. (laughs) But when you're shooting long distance, a, a heavier bullet will shoot flatter at long range than a light bullet will. Does that make any sense to you? You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna have to break it down for the people in the back. All right. So here's the reason being. So we're, we're gonna get all mechanical. I like mechanics. I like knowing things work. <laughs> so mechanically, you got two cars. One's a 1965 Cadillac. It's a land yacht. Okay. Weighs a ton. Then you got a 2020 Volkswagen little lightweight thing meant for aerodynamics meant for uh efficiency and good gas mileage so it don't weigh nothing they're both going down the road at 65 miles an hour side by side down a two-lane interstate hauling butt 65 miles an hour you with me yep yes sir Side, side by side they're booging down the road bumper to bumper mirror to mirror you slam on the brakes at the same time which car is gonna stop first volkswagen all day because it don't have as much right. forward moving inertia. That Cadillac weighs forty seven tons. It's gonna take four miles to get that truck to the top. That Volkswagen's gonna stop on a dime. It's gonna skid a little bit and stop. So this is the same way in must loading bullets. One weighs two hundred and fifty grains, the other weighs three hundred. They both come out of the barrel moving about the same muzzle velocity. Time you get to two hundred yards that four, or the, the 250 grain bullet has already lost its forward moving inertia because it's lighter. The 300 grain bullet is still rocking forward, and at 200 yards, if they're both sighted in 100, that 300 grain bullet is probably going to shoot three to four inches higher or flatter than the 250. The 250 is going to dive off where that 300 grain bullet is still moving. So, and you can stay towards the, the 300 grain marks, kind of a sweet spot. You have um, a longer bullet, so it's, it's more accurate because it's going to stabilize better in flight. You have a heavier bullet, and it's going to give you more kinetic energy, which is going to give you more effective killing energy uh, to harvest your, your animal. Uh, 
and it's going to keep its moving inertia longer because it's heavier, and it's going to shoot flatter for you the longer distance that you shoot. That's money. I love that breakdown. Yeah. That that that's so simple. Even even a Georgia boy that says Sabbath can uh, can appreciate it. So so that's the reason. That's the reason you always want to try to stick to a three hundred grain bullet because it's a really good sweet spot. It's longer than than a two fifty, and it's more kinetic energy and it shoots flatter. Right. Um, and with the hundred and ten grains of powder charge, you're not pushing that bullet so hard that it gets erratic. It's kind of a right. kind of an easy medium, you know. That sixty-five, seventy-mile-an-hour car, you know, same scenario. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Whoever asked that question, there's your yeah, <laughs> there's your load combination right there. <laughs> I love it. So, so, so I, I'm sorry for the for the person who asked that question, but it it was a very long answer, but it it, it was a fine question to, to ask. Right. Yeah, it's perfect. Um, here's another question: Is a, a black horn 209 conversion is it worth it for the average person without question um so here's a few things to know about black horn uh, number one I, I don't work for them uh, i don't i'm not sponsored by them i don't have affiliation with them other than i use that powder uh, but one of the weakest links and, and i think maybe we hit on it uh, very early in this podcast was that um uh, one of the weak links to, to hunting with a muzzle loader is inclement weather uh, rainy, damp, snowy weather has always been a problem because all of the black powder propellants, whether it's GoX black powder, um, uh, uh, Pyrodex, Triple Seven, or any of the pelletized forms of powder, they're what they call hydroscopic. And hydroscopic means basically uh, the absorption of water. So uh, when you're out there, the propellant that we use is pretty sensitive to moisture. Um, where the conversation changes is, is the question this, this person asked is about the Blackhorn 209. Blackhorn 209 is the only powder on the market today that is not hydroscopic. Mm. Um, so first and, first and foremost, it doesn't absorb moisture. Uh, humidity, rain, snow, I mean, um, yes, I guess if you poured five gallons of water down the barrel of your gun, it would definitely be a problem. Uh, but standard intimate weather that you would hunt in with humidity and moisture in the air does not affect Blackhorn 209. Um, the other side of that, too, is um, in the muzzleloading world, um, everybody thinks about them being so corrosive or the propellant being so corrosive uh, and nasty and pitting of the barrels and things like that has been common uh, for a long period of time. Um, the, the biggest piece of the puzzle and propellant uh, that makes them nasty and corrosive is sulfur. There is no sulfur mm. in Blackhorn 209. So it still smokes, like just, just like what you think a muzzle should, but it smokes less. Um, it doesn't take harsh chemicals to clean up uh, the gun after you shoot. Um, it's not hydroscopic. It doesn't stink. And it's not corrosive because it doesn't have sulfur in it. So there's a ton of advantages to swap uh, to swapping a gun or changing a breech plug over uh, to make it compatible uh, with 209. And the reason that you have to get a conversion. So here's some technical nuggets here for black or about Blackhorn 209. Blackhorn 209 has a very high ignition point, meaning 
it takes a lot of fire, a lot of heat from your primer to make it go bang. Okay. Um, so, uh, like our guns in particular, our breech plugs, we have a breech plug called a QRVP, quick removable breech plug. Um, and the flash hole, which is the hole that your fire travels through from your primer to get to your powder charge, um, is a pretty long uh, canal that that fire has to travel through. Um, so we created a breech plug specifically for Blackhorn where uh, we cord out the breech plug and that flash hole is very, very short. So your fire from your primer only travels uh, uh, maybe a quarter inch or so before it reaches the, the powder. So uh, that's one thing to keep in mind is the flash point is pretty tall and you need to make sure that your breech plug is compatible with using Blackhorn. And it's not anything to do with the with Blackhorn being bad or uh, your breech plug being bad. It's just you've got to adapt that breech plug to make it where it will ignite the Blackhorn 209. Now, and that's a pretty cheap conversion, right, for most of your guns? Yeah, it's like uh, the breech plug, uh, I think, is like 25 or $28 if you bought it online. Uh, probably if you see this store, it might be 22 or 23 But it's very inexpensive conversion uh, to be able to shoot that black horn. And the reason that, that it's a conversion, if you will, is not everybody out there wants to shoot black horn because it's loose. So you got to measure it, uh, mm-hmm. which takes a little extra time. Um, so we build the guns with a breech plug that is designed for shooting pellets and uh, loose pyrodex and triple seven. Um, uh, it's just the folks that want to step it up and shoot that black horn is they are the ones that have to change over. But well worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, uh, sounds I'm like I'm sure it. since we kind of touched on it a little bit there, could you kind of maybe touch on maybe like cleaning tips or maintenance tips for your muzzleloader? Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's another thing that, that muscleloaders get a bad rap for is because, you know, you do have to clean them and you do got to swab them versus a Finifier rifle where you just run it and run it and run it because if you can smoke this powder, you don't have to clean per se after, after um, every shot or multiple shots. But uh, in the muzzleloading world, it's about being consistent. Uh, to make these guns shoot long distance accurately, uh, it's, everything's got to be consistently done time and time again. Um, uh, like this Paramount Pro that I'm shooting, you know, it, it's very consistent, it's very uh, precision. Um, and in the muzzling world, it's very important for consistency purposes. If you're shooting for accuracy, uh, and there's, there's two different scenarios here, uh, shooting in the field for recovery of an animal that you've got to shoot twice, or shooting on the bench for accuracy. Uh, the two scenarios is, is if you're on the bench and you're shooting for accuracy and you want that gun to be as accurate as you possibly can be, it needs to be swabbed and cleaned just the barrel now, mind you. You don't have to break the gun apart. But at least the barrel itself uh, needs to be swabbed after every shot, and that's with one damp patch uh, and one dry patch. That way that the barrel has the same cleanliness and restriction every time you pull the trigger for identical use uh, and, um, and accuracy. Now, uh, in the field, if you have to do a follow-up shot, you can load it again and reshoot it and still be accurate uh, and have a great follow-up second shot. So you don't have to shoot it in the field and go, oh, gosh, before I shoot this deer again, if I have to, or this animal again, i got to swab the barrel. No, you don't. 
But for accuracy purposes and consistency purposes, it's always best while you're on the bench to swab with one damp and one dry, uh, and then at the end of the day, break it down and clean it up really good. Right. And what about storage? How do you, how do you store your muzzle loaders? Um, so I, once I finish up at the end of the day um, or at the end of a hunt, I'll um, clean it as thorough as I can, breech plug removed, clean the breech plug, uh, swab the bore, make sure the bore is clean, um, and then I'll just run an oil patch uh, down the barrel just just because, uh, and, it, and it's more of that's what I've always done. Um, but today's muzzleloaders, if you look at a, a CVA uh, on, the, on the shelf and it's a, we'll say, camo stock and the barrel is black, um, that black is not a bluing that we know uh, or typically think about. Our barrels are black because we run, a, run them through a nitride process. And basically, uh, all of our barrels are stainless steel. Uh, and stainless, uh, inside the, the molecular structure of that steel, there's carbon in it. Carbon is black. When we run these barrels through a nitride process, which in layman's terms is a salt bath, it changes the molecular structure of that stainless steel and brings the carbon to the exterior surface. So the outside of the barrel is black and the inside of the barrel is black, which is basically part of its own body, its own makeup, but in essence looks like a coating. And that nitride coating, if you will, um, protects the stainless steel uh, and makes it impervious to corrosion or rust. So if you have one and it is a nitride barrel, you actually don't have to put oil on it anymore because it will not rust mm. ever. Okay. Again, technology. So we bring the technology. <laughs> we bring the technology from the military field. Um, you know, the, the I mean, uh, everybody that I'm sure listens to this podcast is probably a Second Amendment supporter, or at least I hope they are. If not, they can leave now. Um, but um, <laughs> but the um, uh, these guns that, that our military has in their hands that they protect our butts overseas with, they have a bad rap, and sometimes they're called black guns. Oh, the evil black guns. Well, black guns are not black because we painted the dog on things and wanted to make wanted to make them look black. They're black because they're nitrided, so they're impervious to any weather and corrosion and rust. So when the military has them overseas, they don't rust and jam up on them over there. So basically, what we did is is we pulled military technology from these quote unquote black guns and put them into our muscle loaders, which makes them impervious to weather and corrosion. So it's pretty cool. So you don't have to clean. You don't have to clean up with oil or finish uh, at the end of the day and oil them down and all this kind of stuff. It's just not necessary now with nitride. That's awesome. That's that that pulls a lot of the the tediousness out of trying to keep a gun from from rusting, especially if you're gonna mm-hmm. if you're gonna take it out in the elements. I mean, a little bit of moisture. We don't have a, a whole lot of that down here in Florida, but. You know, a little bit of moisture. You got a whole lot of humidity. I know. I know what you got down there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And mosquitoes. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. State bird. But uh, you know, it, <laughs> it, that, that that I think that's going to be an upgrade for me here shortly because it's it 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 does it does sound like it it would make my life a lot easier. Well, the Muslims have always had a bad rap for oh man they're going to rust and that black powder is so corrosive it's going to pit the barrel. Um, 
And again, if technology has made it to where that's not a problem anymore uh, for guys that are into the muzzling world, which gives us the ability uh, to bring new people into the sport because now we can tell them, hey, you know, they're not like they used to be. They're not going to rust up like they did before. Um, And and some people, as I hate to say it, they're not as good about cleaning their guns as others. uh, And that nitride uh, helps that firearm last a whole lot longer. Sure. Sure, especially probably on long hunts too, weaker, weaker, longer hunts. If you're shooting it, and make sure it's still on and all that. It kind of gives you that grace period. Yeah, uh, yep, absolutely. So the the next question is: Are the new muzzleloader advancements straying too far from the traditional aspect of what makes a muzzleloader special? We kind of touched on that, but you know, it was funny. I felt like I had to include it even at the end because there were so many people that that went back and forth. I shared it in a couple little Facebook groups, and there was a, a genuine, um, oh, I don't want to call it an argument, but kind of a kerfluffle amongst the gentlemen uh, debating on what was too far, and they made a bunch of different arguments, and I, I'm curious what yours is. And, and I, you know, I hear this too, and, and my staff and my team, you hear this. Um, uh, and, and there's a... Uh, legitimate concern. Um, I, I do understand their viewpoint, um, but at the end of the day, um, almost like I hate to use this scenario, but like building a better mousetrap. Um, you know, it, it's still the the muzzle loaders that are on the market today, with the exception of the one we talked about earlier, that was just cartridge powder. Sure. Um, um, they still load down the front. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sitting here in this room and, and I'm looking at uh, 50 years of muzzleloading technology and the Paramount Pro, which is a $1,600 suggested retail 700-yard muzzleloader, uh, and I'm looking over here at a CDA St. Louis Hawkins from 1950. Every way except for the way they look is the same. Um, so... I see these folks' point is, yes, we're pushing it. We're pushing our distances and things like that. But at the end of the day, this St. Louis Hawking, which is a five-hammer percussion rifle, and this Paramount Pro are identical in all aspects but the way they feel in your hand. They still load down the front of the barrel. Sure. They still take a bullet or a projectile that's either in a sabot or a full bore, and they still have a primer that goes at the back of the barrel that ignites the uh, the power charge. Right. Um, so in all working aspects, I get their point, but we still are shooting muzzle loaders. Um, right. You know, it's not like we're shooting uh, smokeless powder, and there's guys that are doing that um, highly, highly, highly. Uh, again, highly uh, not recommend to do that, um, and we as a brand or myself personally will never do that. Um, but... We're just trying to get the most out of uh, out of our technology and and still keep it a muzzle loader and that powder bullet down the front primer in the back. Well, and I I no one asked for me my opinion, but I'm going to give it anyways. I feel like we got bigger fish to fry than whether or not a muzzle loader has exceeded the capacity of of being a muzzle loader. We need to get more people in the hunt, and we need to recapture some of the people we've lost. And I think we ought to quit quit worrying about a lot of this stuff. And that is that is. The best point of today is, at the end of the day, whatever we can do to bring more sportsmen into um, the area that we love, and that's the outdoors, we're winning. And and whether you know, and, and you know, I'm looking at 
some bows here laying on the floor that, you know, if I had to, to dissect them apart, they're probably $2,500 with the long range sight on the front and a $1,200, $1,500 bow and carbon here and this and that. Um, the guy that shoots that bow versus a long bow, you hear that discrepancy amongst those archers yeah. as well. Oh, you know, you guys are shooting bows with training wheels on. You're not shooting a stick and string. That ain't a real bow. I, I understand. I, I Again, same in that archer world. People are pushing it to the next level, shooting 100 yards, where a guy that's shooting a, a, a for real stick and string, uh, you know, he hopes to shoot 30 yards accurately. Um, but just like you mentioned, at the end of the day, if this gets new people involved in the sport, and long as it's still a bow, and long as it's still a muzzle loader, I, I, there's there's more important things to to deal with besides fighting amongst ourselves. You know, um, we're um, as as outdoorsmen, as hunters, uh, there's people out there that have a lot more money than we have, and a lot more time than we have that's fighting every day to stop us from enjoying our sport and having. Uh, the freedom of the Second Amendment and the ability to go out and hunt and do the things that we enjoy. The last thing we want to do is, is fight amongst ourselves, whether I should be shooting a side hammer muscle loader or a Paramount Pro. We agree. Yep. We, I, we all agree on that. <laughs> Sorry to get all serious on you here at the end. But <laughs> hey, yeah. I led you there. I led you there. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, exactly. Man. We, we're, we're we're not shy of, of serious topics ourselves. We've we've had our fair share. So. <laughs> I, I'm right. sure. I'm sure uh, that's just the way it is. That's it. It's the nature of the beast. Well, Chase, what do you uh, what do you say we wrap this up? Unless you have anything else, we've we've kept uh, this fine gentleman for almost two hours now. Yeah, we have. Uh, the only thing I would like to ask of him is maybe we can get him back on the show at a later date and tell some hunting stories. Yeah, uh, because we know you've got thousands of them to tell. And we'd love to get you back on for like a campfire style podcast and just let you take the mic and run with it with all your uh, stories. Dude, I would, that would be an honor and a privilege. Uh, we'll definitely appreciate the opportunity to do that, to spend more time with you guys. And, and, and that, there is a few stories to be told around the campfire. <laughs> without a shadow of a doubt. Exactly. exactly. There you go. There you go. Well, Tony, hang on one second. I'm going to wrap this up. We want to chat with you afterwards. You bet. Well, man, first and foremost, if you guys are listening to this podcast, we appreciate you guys taking time out of your day uh, to be here with us to listen to this. And, and guys, we appreciate you working so hard to keep the outdoors alive through this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, Mr. Tony, before we, we before we shut it down, why don't you tell people where they can uh, find you, like on social media or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I appreciate that opportunity. Um, so uh, just uh, keep up with me on through uh, social media, which I'm sure everybody listens uh, is a part of Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whoever knows what's next, TikTok and all this other stuff. Uh, <laughs> my handle is Traveling Hunter. That is my nickname. That is the first email address I ever had back 25 years ago. Um, all my buddies call me Traveling Hunter for the sheer fact that I do have uh, the opportunity to travel across this country. So everything that I'm involved in in social media is at Traveling Hunter. And that's country slang because obviously I am a redneck. That is country slang. That's traveling. There is no need <laughs> in traveling. For me. Oh, I love it. I love it. 
Well, hang on one second. Guys, if you enjoyed this show, and I know, I know, I was here when we recorded it. I know you enjoyed this show. Do us a favor. Tell somebody about Tony. Tell us somebody about the podcast. But if you ain't got time for any of that, make time for one thing, and that is to get outside and enjoy the great outdoors.